Dad, we've been at the beach for a couple days. How's your tan looking? Looking good, Ricky. You know, we had family members go out on a deep sea deal a couple days ago, and they caught this great big... Did you see the picture of that? They caught a great big tuna, and when he got it on the boat, it was half gone. It's like he took a knife and sliced it, but they said a shark got it. So I'm like, man, I don't know about going out in that water. It's still probably safer than racing in Daytona last weekend. It was. It is, yes. Hold on to your butts. It's the Mast Cast. Mast Cast coming to you live from the beach. We're at Emerald Isle, North Carolina. Dad has no shirt on. I put my shirt back on. We are in, I don't know, we're in this beautiful four story house here with all mom's side of the family. It's about 30 of us all together, right? Roughly, that ballpark, 25, 30. Well, it's collectively. Depending on who's fell out and who hadn't fell out and who's getting along and who hadn't gotten mad, it's about 30. Yeah. So we're in this house right on the beach and and there's kids running around everywhere, right? Everybody's reproducing at a pretty good rate, besides me, as far as I know. And. Uh, so there's kids running around everywhere and we're trying to figure out all right, where are we going to record this to where we'll at least have some some little bit of quiet and this house has I don't know what to call this this is the this is the entire fourth story we're on here it's like a like a little lookout uh, observation it's like, yeah it's observation deck but call them willow weeps no willow, willow weep is it a willow weep what is the thing called is this a, I know what a weeper is. No, dude. Racetrack. No, dude. In old time homes, they had right at the very top. They go up top and put this little like gazebo thing, where you, the the women could go up to the very top of the house and keep a lookout for their men coming home. Oh. And some of them never come home. I, what is the name of it? They'll 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 some of our followers have to tell us what it is. Yeah. What, I want to say widow watch or widow weep or. Something. But anyhow, this dude is up, and you can see all you see is ocean here. It's pretty cool up here. Yeah, this, they've got a little. We're on one side where there's just a few chairs, and that's really all there's room for is like four little chairs and our little table that we got our microphone sitting on. And then the other side, there's just enough room for a little mini fridge and a card playing table, like a poker table over there. It's set up kind of like. It's funny, see, you started going with it like the old days. I was thinking this is like a, um, I don't know, it's like a hideout during Prohibition or something. Like where you'd where you'd sneak where you'd sneak up everybody'd sneak up with their liquor or whatever else and go up here playing cards and couldn't be found easy. You can't even access this floor easily. If there's a spiral staircase, you got to walk through one person's bedroom, or there's this little elevator here. I took the elevator up here. It's a little a little sketchy, but it worked. Uh, dolphin, a dolphin just jumped. No, that's somebody on a surfboard. Well, that's the same difference. Yeah. Same Tell you what, you can see Daytona Beach from here, I think. No, no, wait a minute. You were explaining this to me out on the beach earlier that, oh, explain this now. You were asking me if just sitting there at the beach, if you're, what, five foot above the water level, right? How far out can you see into the ocean? Yeah, how far can you see? Yeah. We, yeah. we Googled five. If you're five foot seven feet above the beach, which is five foot seven tall, yeah. you can see out roughly 12 miles, give or take a couple miles. Okay. Then you go up another 100 feet and you can see, I don't know, three or four miles. I don't know. It's a long ways out there, dude. Well, we can probably, we're up here pretty high now, so with that, maybe we, we got we a little bit 15, further. We can see probably 15 miles out. Okay. All right. Well, I haven't seen any sharks yet other than whatever ate the tuna, that half the tuna the other day. Yeah. Well, all right. So Daytona, we actually watched this one together here at the beach. Uh, I would gotten about half drunk, but I think I remember what happened. Uh, I, know, I know that Jones boy won, and that was pretty friggin' cool. 
he's bringing the mullet back, I think. Was that a junior, juniorism? The mullet? Yeah. Yeah. Did he say he's bringing yeah. the mullet back? He's I don't remember. He's making yeah. everybody hit the mullets proud tonight or something. Oh, that's right. The, mullet, yeah. the mullet's back. Some deal. It's kind of like slide job. They, the press picked up on it. Yeah. It's a strong mullet. It really is. Uh, there, there's. I'm trying to think. Uh, when I think about mullets, I mean, it kind of comes back to early 90s country for me. Billy Ray Cyrus and Joe Diffie kind of had... The, Marty Stewart kind of has, still has one, but his was kind of a, a modified, like, 80s hair metal, 80s poofed out mullet that he's still wearing. Joe Diffie, though, Billy Ray Cyrus, those were the two preeminent ones to me. And, and that Jones boy kind of has it working for him, I think. Yeah, you know what he looks like? It's the Oklahoma State football coach. The one that, that yelled a few years ago, I'm a man, I'm 40. That guy whose name I can't think of now. He's grown him one that looks just like that Jones boy. Same difference. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't think we had many mullets in racing. Ernie tried to grow one one time. Kyle had one. Well, Kyle wasn't really a mullet. He was just long hair. Yeah. yeah. And he had, he'd have long hair and he'd have it in ponytail a lot. Yeah. Ernie sort of, but see, Ernie would distract you from the the mullet though with his mustache. True, but he had a pretty full, pretty, thick, pretty full mustache. Thick mustache. Mm-hmm. Ernie had a thick mustache. Well, it, well, I'm glad you brought up Ernie because I want to get into talking about Ernie here at some point here. Well, let's talk about the race first of all. I think it was last week, our last one we recorded in your dining room in Virginia. Uh, you were talking about the handling and something or another. I don't know. I don't know if I was really paying attention, but all I know is. While we were sitting here watching the race Saturday, you said, I told you, told you this was going to happen, told you. So why don't you expand on it? Oh, that? that was the guy, the first run they made. We were talking about Daytona 4th of July, how handling is such a key because it's hot. When you're, in, when you're there during the 500 in February, it's not a big deal to you get on into the 500, then it becomes a big, big problem. But in the July 4th race, it's always a problem from get-go because it's right, the track temperature is so hot and the thing gets slick. Well, they moved it. when they moved the, the race to nighttime, it, 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 it took a lot of that away, but it's still coming to play. What got me Saturday night, the, during the very first tire run, maybe, what, five or six laps before the guys ended the first stage, there were guys getting out of the gas. We were noticed that they were jumping up. I think Junior made mention of it first, and you got to watch him. 22 car stands out. He, his car started pushing bad. He'd have to jump out of the gas coming off the corners, and some other guys started doing it. So it... It came into play really quicker than I thought it would for just a one run. But that track, that track can be kind of fickle. When it gets hot, man, it gets slick. You know, you lose your grip there, and you, your handling comes into play. When y'all first, because when you were driving, when you started full time in Cup, it was still a daytime race. Correct. It was really towards the end of your career when uh, lights came into play. If I remember, man, maybe about halfway through your Cup. About halfway. Through. Yeah, halfway through. Um, what was the what was the big was there a big adjustment day to night and the did how much did it change? You know, it really wasn't. I remember being there. I don't know what the, if we were there. Maybe we were there for that race, or maybe it was the five hundred the before the the night race. I don't whatever. Earnhardt went out there at nighttime. He the first time anybody had ever been on that track at night with the lights. Dale Earnhardt went out there and he he had. His radio was mic'd up to MRN and the loudspeakers in the, in the, the, the guy doing the announcing at the racetrack. And his, he was radioed up, wired up to those guys. So he went out there and he made four or five laps and he talked the whole time he was running around the racetrack. Of course, he's wide open, but he was talking about what he was seeing and, you know, the whole deal. And when we did it, you know, it really didn't present any problems. The, the biggest thing that night racing does, you lose some depth perception. 
I mean, it, it just happens. And that was a concern. And we had already raced at Charlotte, I think, in a couple of places or whatever. And you, you kind of got used to it. But the speeds at Daytona had everybody a little bit concerned about losing some of that depth perception and how it would affect what we were doing. Well, to be honest with you, as it turned out, you know, it was nothing to it. You know, everything worked out great. You know, the other part of it is everybody then and still today, most everybody in a race car started out on Saturday night bull rings with tracks that are lit very, very dimly. So your your humble beginnings were, were, were at race tracks where you didn't have much lighting anyhow. Now, granted, you weren't running 200 miles an hour at these places and the whole thing's a lot different and more professional and all that. But, you know, it wasn't like something you'd never done in your life raced at night, but it was, it was a cool experience. It was, it was it, that just went along with everything else that went on when I was there with the explosion. You know, all the stuff that we went through, the new things that happened that we were part of. It was just, it was just a neat experience going through that being right. And you know, at Daytona, the deal was that's where a lot of the crew guys, a lot of the teams took the crew guys for because it was always on July 4th, whenever July 4th was, that's when we used to race. And the, the, the race teams kind of incorporated that week as a, as a vacation for crew members. So a lot of the crew guys would bring their families to Daytona and you get up on, on that race morning and you'd race at, what was it, 10 o'clock in the morning, I think? You were done by noon, right? And everybody, the crew guys were packed up. They were all back in motels and on the beach by 2 o'clock. Then they changed it sometime to start maybe at noon, and then you'd end at 2. But regardless, the guys were always, always able to go, brought their families and everybody. I remember we went, you know, heck, our whole team would be down there. And mm-hmm. when the race is over, man... You know, by midday, everybody's back at the motel in the pool and in the ocean drinking beer and having a big time. And then they changed it to nighttime, and th- that stuff kind of went away. You know, I hadn't thought about that in a long time until just now you're talking about that. I mean, I was, as I've talked about on here, and I talked about a lot on Kelly Crandall's podcast last week, you know, I was fortunate in that you and Mom always made found a way for me to be at the track just about every weekend. I mean, y'all, y'all, y'all really, really went out of your way to make sure I was there most of the time. But there were a lot of times, at least from my, my perspective and what I remember, where I was maybe one of, if not sometimes, the only driver's kid there. At least it seemed that way. Maybe none of the rest of them didn't like me at all or played somewhere hiding from me. I don't know. But anyways, I, it was. It seemed like a lot of times I was the only one there. But Daytona, July week, it wouldn't just be driver's kids or whatever. It would be pit crew members' kids would all be there. Wives would be there. Or husbands in some cases. I mean, people that work their earth track every week, their families would actually come down. And we'd see everybody. We'd all be hanging out at the beach or we'd be at the pool by the uh, by the, by the beach, you know, at the, at the hotel. I mean, I remember one time, I can't remember the bunch of us there. It's, guys, crew members, your crew members' kids, and we were swimming in the hotel pool right there on the beach. And we found somebody lost their money, lost some money in the bottom of the pool. And we found it and brought it up. And we tried to do the right thing and say, you know, we'll give it back to whoever lost it. But nobody was there claiming it. So we ended up taking it and taking it to that little arcade in that hotel at Daytona. I, I'm, I'm just now thinking about that. But Good for y'all, Ricky. Yeah, you Good know, guess we, we enterprised a little bit. Um, yeah, that is, it's definitely a vacation spot. I don't know, I don't know if it's still that way. I would assume maybe it is for some of them. It's a nice place to go during the summer. Well, sure. I don't, I don't think they do it as much as they did, mainly because it's a night race now. Yeah, you know, and everybody comes home when the race is over. It's yeah. a Saturday night race, so it's a, it's a normal race weekend type deal. Yeah, well, that's true. I saw on uh, Bubba Wallace's, I think it was his Instagram story, him and Blaney, 
and their old crew, Daniel Hemrick, who, by the way, I don't think we've talked about him much on here. A, he's a Braves fan, so I'm already going to be a little biased towards him. I kind of like him a little bit. I'm, I'm looking forward to I'm going to start following him a little bit closer. Daniel who? Hemrick. Who's he drive for? I think he drives for Childress, right? Oh, yeah. 21 car? That's right? Yeah. That is correct. He was also swinging off a, a, a tire. No, not a tire swing. A rope swing into the river. A rope Bubba. swing. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, on Bubba's story. But anyways. Um... Well, all right, so the race itself. What did you think of the race itself? And we'll get into well, Stenhouse and all that. But. It was cool. I mean, you know, it was, you know, we had, what, eight cars lined up at the end on the last, <laughs> exactly. on the last overtime start? Yeah. I mean, I did a little bit of tweeting about that. I'm like, well, the good news, the bottom line of the whole race was everybody left out there, nobody was hurt or killed. Yeah. Right? So, you know, case closed, I think is what I said. And, you know, they just wreck these frigging cars so much now, and it's it's... You know, eventually it'll catch up. I mean, it, it, it always does. I mean, somebody get hurt or, you know, or worse, we don't want that to happen, but it's just the way it works in racing. It's not, you know, racing is still a dangerous sport. These cars and the tracks are safer than they've ever been, and consequently these guys get to wrecking, and, it, you know, it just doesn't it doesn't seem to hurt them much anymore, and that, that's good. That's a real good thing. The problem is that I think it sets up a little bit, guys, maybe – Maybe getting a little bit carried away, you know, not really worried about consequences. Well, we've talked about that on Mass. It's a false sense of security. False sense of security. But I thought what was neat at the end of the race, you had, um, let's see, the 47 car. Dinger, yeah. You had Dope Dinger, and you had the 37 car, which was uh, Rusher. Rusher. Yeah. You know, those guys, they had, he had pushed, I'm trying to remember who the 37 pushed. Let's see, who won the race? Eric Jones. That Jones yeah. boy won. I forget now what happened those last couple of days. You know, I was about 25 beers in, well, also wrecking. Yeah. You know, I so it. I was a little bit confused about. But what was cool, the last part, you know, with those guys in the mix, man, we see some things going on, some moves made. And I'm like, boy, this is cool watching these guys do this. You know, guys, you know, your, your favorites are sitting in the garage, Eric. Of course, you still had Truex and Harvick. Well, Harvick got taken out, too. Yeah. But, uh you know, it was cool watching those guys dice and, and mix it up and making moves. And you're like, you're like, you know, guess what? Harvick and and, and, and Bush and Truex, there's other guys out here that can make these moves also and do it pretty good, right? Yeah. Guys you don't hear about. And that's a neat part. And you had Kane up there running good. You had guys, and that's a neat part about Daytona and Dower Talladega. You, you could get some guys that are struggling trying to get things going, and they can get there and make some right moves with the air, and all of a sudden they're up front and they're on TV and people are talking about them, and they get some good finishes too. And that's the neat part about restrict plate racing. The, the not neat part is tearing all the race cars up, but that's that's just a product of restricted plates. Yeah. Always has been, and it always will be. One thing I said, that, and I've said this before, I finally, just, I finally said it enough to where it finally became true, was I, I think I said on the last episode, could this be, or maybe this will be the week that one of those young guys breaks through. Now, hand in the air, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about Eric Jones when I said it, but I should have been. Mm-hmm. I definitely should have been. He's, he, you know what, good for him. I'm glad he won because we probably haven't talked about him enough. When we talk about, quote, unquote, the young guys, I'm going to guess, not just me, that most people, the first, first names that would come to mind would be Chase, uh, Blaney, and maybe Bubba, just because of, Mm-hmm. personality and driving for the cane and all that. I'm guessing those would be the first three. I'm guessing that most people, the Jones boy, wouldn't be one of the first three that would come to mind, but he should be because he can drive, first of all, and he's got a good team behind him. And So good for him for, for breaking yeah, through. Good for uh, him. I mean, he's, 
went through some tragedy over the yeah. last little bit with his dad and all. So it's really, really. I'm sure everybody's seen it by now. I know Gibbs had it on their social media accounts, and then NASCAR and NASCAR and NBC accounts were all sharing them. The pictures of him and his dad when he was a kid at Daytona with their arms raised in the air, kind of like you know Earnhardt races. You know the statue of him with his arms raised in the air. They were kind of doing that split together with with the pictures of him having won that race the other night with his arms in there. That was. That was pretty friggin' cool to uh, to to see that. Yeah, it's a feel good story. That's very feel good. That was definitely feel good. I bet you some people in the way he was, the way he reacted, and I bet he gained some fans on Saturday. Well, I think so. I mean, he would, I, you know, he it seemed like he was he was very enthusiastically. Yeah. I mean, he's very enthusiastic in there in victory lane. I mean, you can tell this boy he was true, truly happy. We the guys, you know, you get to winning and you come to victory lane after your thirtieth win or whatever and. You know, you're trying to be happy and enthusiastic, and you are, but, but there's a difference. The guys that's never won, and they get the first two or three victories, it's just, it's just different when you watch them and listen to them in victory lane and how happy they are, and you get to, you get to, hear, you get to hear a bit a little bit more about their background and the struggles they had to make it there and some of the ironies in their life that, that took place. And uh, oh, anytime you have a new winner, it's like that. And, and Joe's, he didn't disappoint. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's just it's pure, real joy. That's right. It's it's real, it's genuine, authentic, and it's just and it's it's, it's cool to see. I I like to see some more of it. And to your point, I think that was what now the the wrecks and everything aside, which I'm, I'm not saying that the wrecking half the field or in this case more than half the field is is great racing or anything. But if it, if the end product was in this case. That we had a bunch of names up there running for it that we don't usually have, then I, you know, I'm okay with that every now and then. It was just good to see. I don't like that it took wrecking most of the field to get to it, but like well, to even what's his face? Uh, what was it the, the DJ uh, Kennington or I don't even know if I'm. I'm probably screwing up his name. I know he's from Canada, but even he was up there running. It was good to see. Yeah, they they missed it. The, the, Alan mentioned that he's running second. The next thing he went straight back, but he's he was a pit stop. Whatever. Yeah. You know, one thing that did hurt me thinking about it, one of our scribes, we're always, we're always fussing about our NASCAR scribes. One of our scribes put out on a tweet talking about Junior, right? And they were saying, yeah, I really like Junior, and I think he's doing a good job, and he's very enthusiastic. But like all newcomer, all newcomers to broadcasting, his enthusiasm is a little bit over the top, and he's mm-hmm. making his voice being high-pitched. His voice is too high-pitched because he's too enthusiastic. And but he'll grow out of that as time goes, and he'll get he'll get normal. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? What the hell? Just what the hell is wrong with you people? What? I mean, you can't do anything without being friggin' negative. You know? I'm like, good God Almighty, man, Earnhardt. I mean, just he was just he's just good at what he does, and you got somebody trying to knock it down. But you know what? Like they're all just trying to get hits in the media and on Twitter and all that. But anyhow, that's 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 that was my side. So let's go back to the race. Well, no, no, hang on now. Let's catch on that for a second. You and I have always said that the best. I, I think we both agree on this. That the best broadcast crew I've ever had in NASCAR was Barney Hall and Eli Gold in the MRM booth with all our boys down there in the pits. Whether it was Winston Kelly, Alan Bestick, all those guys were they. I'm telling you, they, we we come back to it all the time. Those guys, and still the MRN guys today, do this too. I think they do. Where somebody will be leading by by half a free lap, but it, like on TV, it might look a little boring. But if you're listening to it on the radio, it is the most exciting friggin' thing you've ever heard. It's all coming down to this. Here they come. There they're coming. They're diving into the turn, yelling, hooting, hollering, and I love it. I mean, if you don't want somebody that's enthusiastic. 
What do you want if you don't want somebody that's being enthusiastic about calling yeah, a race or any, any sport? What, all, what do you want? Yeah, I, exactly. I always said Barney Hall, man, he's the one that taught all the guys how to make them think. If you're listening on the radio to the broadcast, you're sitting there listening to the radio, and you can smell the rubber burning. You can, you can smell the exhaust fumes in the friggin' radio speaker because Barney was so good at that. And he, he kind of set the tone for that years and years ago. And, and MRR, the MRN still carries it along today, dude. I mean, they're... I mean, it's yeah. I, mean, I agree. I agree with you. And whoever wrote that, I'm like, oh man, come yeah. on, dude. But anyhow. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So the uh, what did Kurt Busch call it? The Stenhouse Demolition Derby. Stenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, what did you make of uh, What did you make of Stenhouse's night and what happened there? Well, I sent a tweet out during that one time, Rick, and I said something about. All, I'm trying to think of something to say, folks, but all I can think of is Danica right now, and I don't know. And that 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 created quite a stir. I mean, we got it was a lot of funny stuff. You know, read some funny stuff. Go back to my Twitter account and read some of the comments to that. There, there was there hilarious. Some it was really, hilarious. There were not just yours on Twitter in general. There were some good <laughs> Danica tweets floating around during that race. Well, there were some really good ones. In uh, all seriousness, it's about it, this whole deal is about relevance, mm-hmm. in my in my opinion. I mean, what, what I understand, Ricky's a good dude, good race car driver. He's certainly a good race car driver. He wins at everything. And, but, but right now, you know, Roush is trying to be relevant, right? And they don't have a lot of chances. When you, you go, how many races we run? Well, I guess we're halfway through the season yet. And how many chances have they had to be relevant? And for whatever reasons, the last year or so at these super speedway restrictor plates, the 17 car has been badass fast. I mean, Stenhouse, his car has been about as good as anybody at these tracks. So when you're when you're struggling and you're trying to be relevant, not only as a driver, I mean, Ricky's wanting to keep his status going, you know, because he, he's, he's a superstar in our sport and he can be for years. But, you know, other than the Speedways, they just, again, have, haven't been relevant in the Roush organization for the most part. Hasn't been relevant as far as running up front and contending for wins and contending for championships. And when you get a chance to... to to, to showcase you're running good, you know, you do everything in your power as a driver to make sure that you're going to take advantage of that, of what you were given that day. Now, the problem that's happened, of course, is what happened with Ricky at, at Daytona. And it also carries over from the 500. Ricky had some problems during the 500 in February, right? And caused a couple little deals that happened. And the deal the other night, you know, uh, you know, he got in the back of Keselowski and took out a lot of cars, and he got into, I guess it was, who was it? Was it Kurt oh, or Kyle God. Bush? Uh, yeah. I believe it was. It was, it was, it was uh, yeah, it was Kyle. Yeah, it was Kyle. yeah, yeah. It was a lot, it was a lot of them. <laughs> you know, he, he lost the nose in the middle of the turn and shot up the racetrack and hit. So, you know, it's a shame that all that's come down on Stenhouse. But I, you know, on the other side of it, I, t- I totally understand because you got to understand, man, in, in cup racing, when you're with an elite team, you've got an elite team, and Rouse is definitely an elite team, and you're struggling and struggling as long as they have been, right? Then you've got an elite driver, and, and Stenhouse is an elite driver, and you're back there running 15th every week with your organization. You know, you got to understand the pressure that, that everybody's under, and you know what? When you have like again, when you when you have a chance to do something good and run good. You do everything as a driver in your power to make sure you capitalize on it that day. And if that means you got to be a little more aggressive, then that's what happens. But the problem is, again, when you do that, you take chances of things going wrong. And 
you know. But the good news is, I mean, Stenhouse has held it. You know, he's had his held his head up high. He's admitted to it. You can tell in his demeanor uh, when they talked to him one time on the radio. You know what he and I, when I heard him talk, I'm like, man, I really I feel bad for the dude because he know he understands what he's what he did. He knows it's his fault. He knows he took out half the field. He understands that and he felt bad about it. But at the same time, he's still out there getting paid to do a job. So. You know, I mean, if it, if it continues every week, then yeah, you got a problem. But, you know, and, and, and more than likely, if that team in Stenhouse have been running the way they should be, you know, over the last year or so, maybe those wrecks wouldn't have happened. Maybe he, he'd eased up a little bit in both instances and not, and not took his chances to, to do the wrecking, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the pressure is enormous in that series. It's just an enormous amount of pressure on everybody. And again, you, you don't let things slip through your hands when you got a chance on capitalizing on a good run. Well, yeah, I think you pointed out to the important thing there is that he owned up to it. I mean, he yeah. owned up to it right afterward, and that's, I mean, I don't know what more you can ask for a guy than okay. that. He, he, he immediately owned up to it, and that's that's it. You move on. Uh, what did, all right, so was there ever a time in your career where maybe you had a fast car or something and you got in, like, I don't think got in over your head, but you just you pushed it. You're so excited, you just so you knew you had something working there where you all, you end up screwing up because you had too much, you were trying too hard, or? Uh, uh, not a whole lot. Really, it's kind of what caused me to get on my roof at Talladega that time. I had a fast car that day, and I made a move through the trial going underneath, I think it was Davey Allison, and I made a little move that uh, maybe with somebody else I shouldn't have, but he was behind me. He was on my left rear quarter panel. I didn't know for sure he was there. I thought he was clear. I wasn't sure he was clear, but I made him had him run on David and move to the inside of him through the trial. Well, Buddy was behind me on my left rear. When I moved down, Buddy didn't move, and it clipped my it clipped me and turned me sideways. Of course, it got up in there and flipped and all that. But you know that's just one of those deals. You're trying to be aggressive, and you know that was my first year in Cup, and I was still. You know, everything would happen. I would do things overboard, trying to trying to do things I shouldn't have been doing. Let's put it that way. And you know, for the most part, it didn't really cause a lot of problems. But a lot of mistakes were made that first year with me trying to be too aggressive. Yeah, and that's the case. I, I couldn't remember a time where you you caused a wreck with other people. But I guess you but a couple of times where you cost yourself is what you're saying. Yeah, your mistakes were made. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah. And that could go either way, right? That's just that's kind of oh yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Well, what uh, well, you mentioned, since we're talking about Stenhouse and this deal, and I don't know that it's exactly the same because Stenhouse immediately kind of owned up to it, but I wanted to talk about one of your old uh, competitors, comrades, Ernie Urban, who I know you were, you were, you were friends with back then in life. Swerving Urban. Swerving Urban, yeah. Well, and that, there's a reason for that, that he earned that nickname. <laughs> yeah. When he first kind of came on full-time, I know he was part-time. I know he ran that same DKR at number two car you did for a he little did. bit. And, he did. But before he got on, when he got with Morgan McClure, the number Correct. four Kodak car, that's when his career really took off. That's right. Uh, and he was... He made a, he had a reputation. He gained himself a reputation for being uh, aggressive. I guess you would say, right? Yeah, he did. He uh, Ernie was very talented race car driver, and he's very aggressive. And he was in that same mode. I mean, we, you know, he, he struggled around in different cars like I did, and finally got in the four car with the McClure brothers, uh, Morgan McClure Racing, the Kodak car. And you know, it was a pretty good ride at that point. And Ernie got in there immediately, started running fast. He's running good, and you know, every time he had a chance to to make a move and do something to try to lead or pass somebody, he, he took it, right? The problem was he kept wrecking people. You know, this went on 
This went on for a while. I forget I forget the timeline and how many how many wrecks he'd caused and how many cars he wrecked and all that. The, you know, the other thing about Ernie is when you get out of the race car, you just love Ernie. And, you know, he's like me and so many other guys. He's just a cool dude, had had real good personality, you know, not a not a mean or bad bone in his body. But you get in a race car like most drivers, you put the helmet on and you just turn the you turn the dumbness switch on. You know, that's that's just the way it works in racing. And he would uh you know, he had he had problems. And finally we were at Talladega and he did a move on the back stretch and caused the big one, right? And I think I believe that's the race where Kyle got hurt. I think Kyle Petty broke his leg in that wreck. That sounds right. If I remember and correctly. I believe you're right about that. Yeah, yeah I'd yeah. forgotten about that part of it. All right, that was, that's when it all kind of came to head with Ernie. And I remember, you know, maybe before Ernie got the Kodak ride, I kind of got to know Ernie a little bit, and he was running a bush race at Daytona. And I forget what the deal was. We was all jumbled up coming off turn two, and Ernie made some kind of wild-ass move. He went from the top down to the dirt, and it was just a real, real bold move and passed a bunch of cars or something. I remember after the race the, uh, the next day or whenever, Ernie came to me telling me about Robert Black. Robert Black was our competition director in the Bush Grand National Series for years. Very, very good dude, man. He was, he was very instrumental in the growth of the Bush Grand National Series. Robert ruled that thing with the iron fist. I remember, anyhow, Ernie told me that Robert called him in his office and just basically read him the riot act for making that move back there. You know, he just got all over Ernie. And Ernie, Ernie didn't understand it because Ernie thought, well, I made a hell of a move and got by these cars and passed them. Well, Robert didn't see it that way. Robert said it was a very reckless move. So, but anyhow, that's a side note. So when that wreck happened at Talladega, and I think I've got my timeline right, whatever, the very next week, you know, and everybody mattered hell at Ernie. By this time, probably three quarters of the garage has, has, has been wrecked by Ernie, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, the Swerving Irvin nickname was, that was everybody referred to. I remember it, even though I was a kid, that's where everybody talked about it. He was Swerving Irvin. I mean, I remember Johnny Hayes, who we've talked about on here before. Remember why we were talking about Pocono, and I, I got disqualified for reckless driving at the Pocono in that quarter midget race when I was I a do. kid? Johnny Hayes started calling me Ricky Irvin after that because, <laughs> but again, that comes from Ernie's reputation that he had. Yeah. And that's 91, 92, somewhere in there. Yeah, that's right. Early, early on. Early, in the, early. Early. But anyways, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so you have the big one at Talladega, and then you go the next week, and then what happens? He gets up, and again, you got to go back to Ernie and knowing who Ernie was, and it's kind of like his Stenhouse deal. I mean, I know, I knew Ernie. I knew he didn't want to break people. I didn't know that. That's not what he was after. He was just trying to, you know, prove himself and do his thing. Well, anyhow, so, but everybody, by, by the time Talladega was over, everybody was pissed off at Ernie. I mean, just about everybody had had a shot at Ernie. <laughs> Ernie had a shot at him. So then we go to the next race, we get up to the driver's meeting, and uh, I think it was David Hoot says, uh, we have one last thing here. We have uh, your fellow driver, Ernie, Ernie Irvin, wants to get up here and talk to you guys in front of everybody. So sure enough, Ernie gets up and goes to the front in the driver's meeting, and basically just, you know, I, I don't know word for word what he said, but basically he said, guys, he said, I, I I don't know what's going on. He says, but I have been wrecking cars. I've wrecked you. Kyle got hurt. People were getting hurt. He said, it's all been 100% my fault. He says, I want to take this time, number one, to publicly apologize to every one of you out here. 
and let the media know I apologize and let every one of you drivers, every one of you crew chiefs and every one of you car owners know I, I, I sincerely, sincerely feel sorry about causing all these wrecks and all you guys getting hurt and turning up your race cars. And I promise from this moment forward, I promise that I'll do everything in my power not to let anything like that happen again. I'm, I'm changing what I'm doing. And, you know, we're all sitting there listening. And it's one of those deals, you know, you can listen to politicians, you know they're full of shit. Right. You know they're sitting there lying through their ass at you, you know, and, and, or other people are having a conversation with them. But when Ernie was done, I'm sitting there thinking that that was 100%, 100% sincere. Ernie wasn't blowing smoke up nobody's butt. He was being honest and sincere about what he was saying. And sure enough, from that moment forward, you know, Ernie got his act together. You know, he just, he still stayed fast and won races and is one of the best that ever drove, but he, the wrecking stopped. It, it, it just stopped, you know. It's fun. I remember when uh, when Jimmy Johnson first came on the scene, you know, the first couple of years, man, at Super Speedways, Jimmy was a, he was a menace. I mean, he'd go everywhere else, you know, and he was just rocking and rolling and, and you know, doing good and running up front and it's just that started winning. But we go to Talladega or Daytona, every single time it seemed like Jimmy was causing an incident, right? And it didn't get a lot of publicity, a lot of press, but I remember watching that and thinking, man, Jimmy needs to settle down. Well, I forget the story. I remember reading something about it, a conversation he had with someone, and they talked about that. He needed to get that his eye cleaned up on super speedways. And uh, I remember reading that or hearing it or in a conversation or whatever, but then all of a sudden it's like you turn the switch with Jimmy, right? He stopped being... He stopped making stupid, aggressive moves at Talladega, Daytona, and all of a sudden, he's out front and he's winning. And it's been that way with Jimmy ever since. So, you know, the thing, the thing about race car drivers, and it doesn't matter if you're starting out at a street stop, <coughs> at your local track, or you made it to Cup, guys can go fast, all right? Well, some of the guys come along are extraordinarily fast. <coughs> Excuse me, BassCast fans. <laughs> I had a little... Something blew off the ocean and in my throat. It might but, have been part of that tuna. It might have been some of that tuna. Yeah. But drivers, you, I, I've seen many guys like this who be super, super fast and aggressive, and and they wreck or they have troubles. They might win some races, but they have trouble controlling themselves, controlling the cars. And you, you might win a race, but if you win one race, you've had three races where you've wrecked or took out other cars. Well, that don't work long term if you want to be if if you want race to be your profession. So what has to happen, and I've seen it a million times, guys have to learn to, to throttle back a little bit to where they're not wrecking all the time or, or, or wrecking other people. And eighty percent of the guys I've seen when they've tried to throttle back and not be aggressive and wreck, they lose their edge and they can't run fast and win, right? But, and, and then they, they just can't do it. I've, I've seen it numerous times. But then you got that 20% of those guys that can throttle back a little bit and still win and still and still run up front like an Ernie Irvin or a Jimmy Johnson. And it, it's weird, or not weird, but it's just a fact that I've, I've seen this over years happen. I remember when Ernie gave that speech because they, I mean, you said in front of the media and everything, Whoever was carrying the races or that next week's race where he did make that apology, I mean, they, the, whether it was ESPN or CBS, whoever it was at the time, they had a camera in there and they showed a clip of it uh, that weekend, pre, pre, like before the race, of him up there to apologize. And you could say, I remember seeing it just because, and again, I don't remember, it's probably on YouTube, I don't remember word for word what he said, but what, what's burned in my mind from it is 
And it's not like I knew Ernie or anything. I mean, I'd seen him and stuff, but I knew you knew him. But for me, what was burned in my mind was the look on his face was, it just, it, again, you see, like you were saying, you politicians and everybody else lie to you, but I think most of the time you can kind of see through it and see it. With him, he just had this look on his face of, I don't know if uncomfortability is like being uncomfortable. Point is, he looked he looked like he was legitimately like uh, yeah, sorry and kind of like unawkward a little bit. Because who, who, what driver does that? I mean, how many times has that ever even happened where a driver gets up in front of all the other drivers at the driver's meeting to apologize? I, I can tell you, I raced for 40 years in all kinds of race cars. And that's the only time, only time. Only time I've ever had a driver do anything remotely close to that. And I and I go back to thinking about that more, Ricky, now. You're exactly right. I remember Ernie was very, very uncomfortable up there. And it was he was very emotional for him. Yeah. In fact, he was just, I remember now thinking back on it, he was ready to break out in tears that's, for the most that's, part. That's what he looked like to yeah. me. That's what he looked like. He looked like he yeah. was on the verge of having to choke back, like choke up or choke back tears a little bit. I yeah. mean, he was very, that was what made it seem real, though, to me. Yeah. Was he was up there? It wasn't like he was he was uncomfortable doing it, but he felt like it was something he needed to do and he had to do. I, and then here's the know. bottom line of the whole thing: it wouldn't have made a bit of difference if he went out that race and he went back to himself, just kept record. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No matter what he said, it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. You know, you tell me all you want to tell me, but show me, right? And but it changed. It changed from that moment forward. Ernie was a different driver, but he didn't lose his speed. That was that's what was so neat about it. You yeah. know, and a lot of drivers know that. A lot of drivers know when they. When they if they back up a little bit and quit being so aggressive, you know, that maybe they're not going to be as fast. That's a fear a lot of guys have. Well, the ones are smart enough to realize that, right? But uh, he was one of the few that when he put it back, when he slowed down a little bit, he stayed fast. Well, that's got to be a thing, a tough thing. You're there. You're at the top level. You worked all that time and all those years to get there. And your, your skills that you've developed over all that time is what's got you there. That's Driving right. a certain way is what got you that ride, which got you that spot. What In his case, what had won him Daytona 500 or, or two, however many he won. It won his races, whatever. And then when you're already there, it's one thing if you're on your way up or you're working your way towards something and you're refining your skills and you learn that that's kind of stuff along the way. But once you've already gotten there and you're at the top level, that's got to be especially tough to then try to almost relearn some of what, what's gotten you there. And Ernie, what you've yeah, and Ernie yeah. didn't have a lot of experience in bush cars either. I mean, Ernie came from California. You know, when he moved here, he had work with his dad. You know, and his dad started building metal fab equipment to make metal like bead rollers and sheet metal brakes and all. Vic, that was his dad's name, and he had that thing going on. And then uh, Earnhardt, I think, helped Ernie a little bit with a couple car sponsorships. But he never really, you know, he was never really out there with the, with the Bush guys beating around on Saturdays, right, figuring all this stuff out, you know. And he got, he, he ran some cup races. He got here and he ran, ran a few Bush races, ran a few cup races, and all of a sudden he was in the four car, right? So he had to go through, through a learning curve. but. You know, if a race car driver, and so many owners and children, I think, coined this phrase, you can, it might have been junior, you can you can take a race car driver and you can rein him back if you have to, right? Rein him back, but it's hard to take a driver and, and make him go faster than he can go, right? So, you know, but when you rein him back, sometimes you lose that, but Ernie didn't lose it. So what do you think? I know you don't know Stenhouse on a personal level, but when we go to Talladega here later on this season, do you think that Daytona's race, this is the most recent Daytona race, and what happened is going to be on his pretty fresh on his mind still, or front and center? Yeah, do you think by that time it's gone, or what? No, it'll, it'll be on his mind, but it's also going to be what's going on within the organization, the circumstances. What, what is it? What is Roush? What's the outlook? 
what's his personal outlook with that team? You know, what, you know, is, is he solidified? Is his contract set in stone for next year, next couple of years? Or is he out there battling for his career? You know, it, all those things enter into, you know, what might happen. But, you know, I would think that, you know, from just from a personal standpoint and the type of person everybody tells me he is, I'm sure he's, he's going to reflect on this a whole lot by the time we go to Talladega. Yeah. Let's since we uh, let's jump back to Swerving Urban real quick. Just since we've been talking about him so much, I I just want to I want to go back and revisit his his bad wreck at Michigan and just kind of just since we're talking about it because that's still man that that was pretty vivid in my mind. I mean when he had his near fatal crash at Michigan, mm-hmm. this is he at this point he's in the twenty eight car. He's taking right. basically taking Davies' place, who we lost. The, right. the year before. That's right. Um, which, by the way, quick aside on that, I saw, I think it's Wednesday, this Wednesday on Race Hub, I saw a little trailer for a short film about Davey's life that they've made. I think it's going to, don't quote me on that, but it's I think it's coming out this week. I know Liz Allison's been tweeting about it because it's 25 years this week since we lost uh, since we lost Davey, which is, man, it's hard to believe. Um, but that, that looks really good, so keep an eye out for that. But anyways, this is coming off the heels of losing Davey. Of course, we lost Allen a little bit before that. I mean, it just seemed like tragedy was really running rampant in NASCAR at this point. We thought we were going to lose Ernie there. So I just wanted to go back and just, what do you remember about Ernie's, that whole deal and him recovering and coming back? And yeah, all that. that was that morning. We were practicing, and I was in the garage, and they said 28 card popped the wall in two. Well, first thing you know, we knew it was bad. We saw the helicopter, and then... You know, and you kind of knew what was going on a little bit. And then I remember, I'll never forget being in the garage area, and here came a van driving by, and they got stopped, got out, and it was Larry Mike and, and Robert Yates. And they got out of the, the, the van, and they just kind of walked by me, and they're both just white as ghosts, right? And I just looked at them. I remember both of them looking at me. He's kind of shook, Larry shook his head, and I'm like, oh, man. So anyhow, you know, that night when practice qualifying or whatever was over that day, I drove to... I forget where it was, Ann Arbor. I, I think it was Ann Arbor, yeah, which was not not close to. I mean, it's what close to an hour, forty five minutes from the racetrack. Yeah, like probably an hour yeah. away. They flew him there, and I I went to the hospital that night when I left the racetrack, and uh, I finally found the room they were at, and I went in the room, and it was a it was just a dark room, man. It was Aunt Vic was in there, Ernie's dad, and Ernie's sister was in there, and uh, you know I spoke to him for a little bit. It was a very very upsetting setting, let's put it that way. Ernie wasn't in the room at that point. Ernie, they were they were working on Ernie. And things were not very positive at that point. So I visited with them there. I stayed with them, I don't know, maybe an hour or so. Was Kim there too, his wife? You know she, what, Kim, with him? I'm trying to remember. If she wasn't, I, I can't remember that. Yeah, I, I, I think she was, but I, I, I don't want to push on I that. believe I, she was. I think she was, but then She was in there, and yeah. her dad and sister. Anyhow, yeah. You know, it was a very bleak picture, so I left not feeling real good about things. But yeah. then, you know, Ernie, it was Swerving Irvin, he, he fought all the odds and, you know, he came back. I remember when he came back, I think it was Wilkesboro, when he finally got back, you know, he didn't have the one eye left. He had the one eye, had a patch over his eye. Yeah. And, and, and Robert had promised him when he come back, he'd have a ride. So Robert did a second car for Ernie, and uh, I remember talking to him, man, so happy for Ernie. And he had the patch on his eye, and he said, man, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do this one eye. I said, hell, Ernie, you can beat half the guys here with one eye anyhow. I wasn't worried about that a whole lot. And then uh, he won the race, the next race or something, he won. And then, you know, ran a little bit more than it was over for him. You know, he had to, he had to yeah. call it quits because he's having problems with the concussion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course, today, I'm sure today's world, he would have never got back in a race car again. 
Yeah. With yeah. what we know about concussions and all now. He was lucky because I might have been in Michigan in that uh, 36 car or something like that where he, I can't remember which car it was, where he had another wreck where he at least had a concussion or something. It's like, man, this is... I was. I remember thinking I was glad that he, he called it quits. Cause yeah. It was, just, it was like a, it's kind of like a Neil Bonnet situation where it's just, you just... Time. It's you, time. Time, it's going to happen. You yeah. just need to please get out now because, you know, he had his... His wife, his son, uh, what, Jared, I think his son, you know, and it's like, That's man, right. he had a heck of a career. I know you don't want to quit, but I was, I remember thinking I'm glad that he did because it was just, you could just see it coming. Neil Bonnet shouldn't have, we all love Neil, and he shouldn't have gotten back in the car just because he did, quite simply, it had taken one too many licks to the head, and at that point, it's just a matter of time. So I'm glad Ernie got out while he did, and he's, like you said, he was, especially during that era, he was one of the best to do it. Oh, he was, era. and he, he's still thriving. I know he is. Little son there, they, they were racing some. I'm not sure if he still is now or not. Yeah. But I know Kim, his wife, got in and run those horses and all. And I remember telling him, I said, man, you go from one expensive sport to the other. I mean, horse, horses and race cars, that's about the most expensive thing you can get into. And now the Burtons are into it. Jeff's into it. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or, or Kim's daughter, I guess they're into it. And I, I tell them all the same story, man. Why do y'all go you find, just find the most expensive thing you can do to, to throw your money away in it? If it ain't racing, it's horses. But anyhow, they all yeah. have fun. It's all, it's all good. It's yeah. all good. Er, Ernie's still with us. He's still with us, so it's all good. Yeah, that's it. That uh, Katie, my sister, your daughter, tells me, I don't know when this happened, how it happened, anything, that you broke your hand one time birthing a calf. Is that true? Yeah, I guess it is. I, I I still haven't figured out how in the hell I did that, but you know it was, we had a we had one of them stupid first calf heifers, you know. And if anybody that's best with cows knows that a heifer is when they have their first calf, you got to watch them a little bit because they're not really they're kind of like race car drivers. Their intelligence level is not real high, and they're just not sure what they're supposed to be doing. Sure. Anyhow, one hung up a calf and hung up. It was about about a fourth of the way out, right? So okay. when that happens, you have to assist. And pulling them out. Well, they got this chain deal and this whole system you used to help pull. I didn't have any of that with me. It was out in the field and it was cold. Man, it was snow on the ground. Everything was froze. So I go up in side of the, the mama trying to work this calf out. And it was absolutely the tightest birthing canal I'd ever seen in a cow. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but anyhow, when it was all said and done, the calf, I got the calf out. But my hand was hurt. But it was cold, too. Well, then I spent the next couple of months with my hand all swollen up and black and blue. If I come find out, I broke, I broke a bone in it. And I don't have any idea how I broke a bone in my hand pulling the calf out. But it was one of those deals where you just got everything you've got, you've got to get the calf out, right? And I no longer have cows, by the way. I finally yeah. got tired of that crap three or four years ago. Yeah. How, do you, how many times have you broken a bone and then not known about it until later on? It seems like that's been a thing with you, the recurring yeah, thing. Yeah, that's what happened that? a couple Wasn't there times. a foot in your foot at Martinsville? Yeah, evidently when I wrecked Travis Carter's car at Martinsville, the accelerator hung and I spun it around and hit the, hit the wall off the left side. And it hurt bad, man. It hurt. But somewhere later, years later, or was oh we were at Dover and I hit the wall on the inside and I went when I got my foot was my foot was killing me and I I went to the doctor when I got back home of course and X-rayed it. They said no, yeah they showed me the bone that was broke then. He said but the other bone that you broke it it didn't affect it. I said we mean the other bone. He said well this the other bone that you in your foot that had been broken. I said I never broke a bone in my foot. 
They said, yeah, you did right here. And it showed me, you could see where the bone had been broken and mended. I'm like, well, I wonder when that happened, right? And then I got to thinking back, well, it had to be when I wrecked Travis's car at Martinsville that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I had something else broke one time and didn't realize it. Did you, we talked about the uh, the Watkins Glen wreck a couple weeks ago where you, I think you did break something in your shoulder. Did you not know until later on that something was broken in your shoulder? Well, I kind of knew, Ricky, but I couldn't, I didn't have time to fool with it. Okay. Oh, okay. You had to okay. keep racing. Yeah. It's like a time I broke his ribs. I broke ribs at Bristol one time. I mean, that was in the, the Big Daddy's barbecue. Big Daddy's car. car. And the next week, I switched over to go drive for AJ Foyt. Yeah. My first race with AJ was at Texas. And AJ and me were buddies. They'd been buddies for a number of years. And, you know, you're going to Texas with AJ Foyt car, and you got to do good. So, I mean, I did everything imaginable to try to, to race that car. I had four ribs broke. Three ribs. I'm sorry, three broke. Three of them were broke. Mm. And it happened at Bristol that weekend. The next week, we got to race it. So anyhow, the, the, the traveling training crew at that point was with NASCAR, and they made me a donut, or took a piece of rubber, maybe an inch thick, and, 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 and made it, it's probably, I'm going to say, eight or nine inches diameter, and took the center of it and opened it up. And it, it it's like a donut, right? And put this donut on the side of my, my body here where the ribs are, right, to where the donut was touching everything on the outside of where it wasn't broke, but the hole was where the ribs were broke at, right? Okay. So my, 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 sitting in the seat, we had to readjust the seat, so my ribs wasn't ready against the seat, right? And they had this thing called a TENS unit, and a TENS unit was a deal, was a little electronic thing, it had two probes on it, or two wires coming out of it with two stick-on probes, and most people know what that is, but yeah, you know, it took that probe and it stuck on one, one part of my body here below my ribs, and another Another one was stuck on up here above my ribs, right? And you, you the thing was off and on from zero to ten, the intensity. And that the, you cut the thing on, and what it did, it would run this electric current between those two between the two ten uh, probes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what the hell that thing's supposed to do. The only thing I could figure out was it's supposed to hurt so bad that it masked the hurt from the broken ribs. So anyhow, he's sitting there phone with it, and we mounted we mounted a little box in the car, right? And we hooked into it when I got in the car and got all seated, fed it up. They would hook it up, and I could manually adjust that thing during the race. Well, you'd sit there. I remember cutting that thing on, and you cut it up, cut it on, and cut it to about two, and you'd really start feeling it. If you got it up to four, man, it's all, all I could take was to move that dial to four because it would just kill you, right? And it, and it would go all the way up to 10 if you wanted. Yeah, it would go up to 10 wow, if you okay. wanted. Okay. Well, let me tell you something, Ricky. 10 laps in that race, I had that baby on 10. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember the first time I made a pit stop, these guys, made, they changed right side tires, they come around and changed lefts, and the jack man dropped, dropped that jack hard, and it, it hit. When it comes down, a lot of times when the jack comes to when you let the jack down, the car comes down, it hits solid on the jack. In other words, the springs collapse in the car, mm-hmm. but the momentum keeps the car coming on down, but when it stops, it stops on that jack. So it's like you're just hitting a brick wall. And as soon as it hits, the car comes up, you know, and the jack pulls out and you take off. He dropped that jack at time, man, and I cussed for two laps by jack man. <laughs> I said, do not let that jack, from that moment forward, do not let that jack down hard like that. Just let it down easy. 
So, so and that was your first week driving for AJ. That was the first week driving for AJ. Yeah. yeah. So how? So they were was the team fully aware though of your that your ribs. Oh yeah, up? they knew my ribs all broke yeah. up. Yeah. I was about to say if you go to AJ, to, AJ probably doesn't have any sympathy for no. his ribs or anything. Being no. Broke. He's about 110 now, and he's still getting bit by rattlesnakes and bees and whatever Killing else. Bees. Well, he wiped out a whole population of bees in Texas. Yeah. They they stung him and, and, and they all they, all the bees died. He didn't. Right. So, yeah. He, he, uh, no, there, there's no sympathy with AJ as far as bodily injuries. Injuries. Yeah. yeah. If you can, if you can still move your hands and work your feet, you go drive that race car and don't want to hear any shit either. Just right. drive it and shut up. That was him. He was. Uh, well, I don't know if we probably talked about him before, but just the time that he came through when open wheel racing, when it was like there was a decent chance you're gonna die if you oh, yeah. at some point driving those things. Oh, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's old school. That's like, did you ever see the movie The Right Stuff? With uh, like Chuck Yeager and oh, first yeah. Mercury Astronauts. Everybody saw that. Yeah. Or you remember, all right, so when Chuck Yeager, I mean, he'd done something. He fell off a horse or something. Uh, and he had, he broke, I think he had broken his ribs. And again, this is the movie version, so I don't know how true it was, but it probably was true. He had, to, he was supposed to go out and break the, uh, break the sound barrier, break another speed record in his plane. Well, they had to rig him up something. Like he could fly the plane, but he couldn't get the door shut. So he had one of his guys rig up something to where he could, uh, it's like some kind of pulley system or a lever or something to where he could rig the door shut and then the, the, so that he could fly. But he had to hide it from, from uh, some certain folks. Otherwise, yeah. they would let him go up there. My point here is I guess you just kind of have to have that mentality if you're doing something, quote, unquote, crazy, like flying a fighter plane or going for a speed record or driving a race car. It has to be a certain mentality. Or maybe, as you've said before, a lack of intelligence. Well, also, you also had to feed your family. If you, yeah. don't, if you didn't race, you, if you didn't race, you didn't get a paycheck. So you had to, yeah. you know, you had to fight through all stuff. But it wasn't a big deal because everybody did it. It's all relative, you mm-hmm. know. It's all relative. Everybody did the same thing. It wasn't anything uh, unnatural, you might say, about it at the time because we all did the same thing. And t- speaking about AJ on a, on a, a solemn note, give a shout out to Mario and Reddy yeah. losing, losing his bride. You know, they were, what, 60-some years? Gosh, man, that's, 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 pretty, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? It was neat. I was reading about it, and Mario was talking about it, an earlier quote from before we, before we lost her. He was talking about, uh, you know, he, he went off racing. She, she raised a family. Like so many of the wives in those areas did, mm-hmm. she didn't want to be on TV. She didn't want to be Miss Mario Andretti. She didn't want that limelight. All she knew is she had to raise them babies, right? Mm-hmm. And Mario, you, you go do your thing, and that was... Uh, it was just it was a neat deal. So anyhow, condolences to the to the Andretti family. You know what's made you you nailed it there because ever since I was a little kid, I've known who the Andrettis were. I knew who Mario was, Mike was. I know who Marco is now, and who John. I mean, you knew Jeff Andretti. You knew all these Andrettis. You knew all about them. And I mean, Mario in particular is just in sports in general. I mean, he's like the king. He's one of the most famous people, famous athletes that's come out of this country in the last half century, more than half century, really. He's He's one of those few race car drivers that transcended, I think, the sport that he was in to where even people don't know a thing about racing, at least when they hear the name Mario Andretti, they know that that's, that's a race car driver. Oh, yeah. Because, they know who that is. Yeah, because, and a lot of it had to do with when he went to Formula One. Yeah. You know, we knew him in the States. We went to Formula One and successful. The 24-hour Le Mans, you know, yeah. successful. We won the Daytona 500, won the Indy 500. He won everything he got in. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, he just like again, he transcended the sport, the sport auto racing. Yeah, and you know, this was this week when she passed away. Was the first time I'd ever really knew anything about her or, or his wife and the mother. Like I, I just didn't know much about him. But but that's to your point. If she didn't want any part of that of the limelight and all that, she was just she was the family. 
person. She was the, the, the person who raised the family and held it together. And I did see his tweet, his first tweet about it the other day. And by the way, for being an old fella, an old legend like him, his Twitter account's pretty darn good. Yeah, it is he pretty is pretty good. darn yeah, good he's on that. Sharp. He is. Yeah, yeah, he's very sharp. But his tweet about her, I recommend if you haven't seen it, go go check it out. It's a very nice little in tweet form, as nice as you can do. Anyways, a, a condolence or a farewell to his bride of sixty years. It was pretty cool. It was very very cool. I liked it a lot. So go check that out. And uh, condolences to the Andrettis. <laughs> All right, Dad, it's, it's about time to wrap it up here because I'm, I'm going to run back out to the beach one more time today before, before it's done. And I haven't had a beer yet. And I don't have any baseball games to work tonight. So it's, it's I got a number of beers. Plus, I didn't order us a bushel of crabs I got to pick up here in a couple hours. I got a lot going on. I'll tell you one thing. It's five, it's five o'clock somewhere. It's five o'clock in Emerald Island. Right? It's close enough. Yes. Yeah. So let's get, do you, let's get your quote of the week here. I'm going to give you a real simple, quick, fast, funny quote, Rick. Okay. Am I guessing who, who said this or no? You might get it. Okay. Cold's on the right, hot's on the left, and shit won't go uphill. Is this a race car driver? It is. Oh, You're talking to him. Rick Mass. Oh. <laughs> Plumber extraordinaire. <laughs> Bye, folks. <laughs>